Good morning. If you're new here or checking out our church for the first time, I am not the, the pastor of the church. My name is Jim Adams. I'm one of the elders here. Pastor Charlie is on the beach with his family. Pastor Jared is on the beach with his family. And I'll be, this, this is a, actually a good thing for our, our, our church. God has blessed us with gifted, awesome pastors, right? And it is, yeah, let's. And it's important for them to have time with their family, to uh, enjoy their wife and children, and also just to be refreshed in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we open our heart before you. You will do great things in us and for us this morning. We pray that, trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, tell the truth, how many of you have ever said to one of your children when he or she was going through a tough time at school or maybe a tough time with friends, did you ever say, this is good for your character? Anybody ever say that? We, we, we did. I'll assume that the rest of you are, are not parents or that vulnerability is not the high value that I thought it was in this church. When we lived in Guatemala, I used to do my running routine through our neighborhood there. It was, I enjoyed it. There were a lot of good hill climbs. But there was one thing that, that scared me. And that is, every, every once in a while, uh, one of the neighbors would pull open their, their iron garage gate like that just when I was running by. And that was a little bit dangerous because sometimes just on the other side of that iron gate was a dog who was waiting for his day to charge out into the street. And so one afternoon I was out running and this neighbor pulled open the iron garage gate and sure enough, out comes a Rottweiler, whose name I found out later was Rocco. So Rocco... The Rottweiler came straight for me. And I, I tried to hold him off with a baseball cap I had on my, my head, but this was going to be Rocco's big day. He, Rocco was not going to be denied. And so Rocco got me pretty good on, on the right forearm, bit me several times, got, put a gash in my side here. The neighbor finally got him back under control. Bad dog, Rocco. Bad dog to bite the missionary man. Yeah. So I was, I was be bleeding in a couple of places. I was only a few blocks from home, so I headed for home, and Jenny got me kind of patched up as best she could. We got the boys in the back of the car. We headed for the emergency room, and as we went by where Rocco lived, I said, that's, that's where Rocco, the Rottweiler, he, the dog that bit me, that's where he lives, right there. And I heard a voice from the back of the car, my son Caleb, say, right, Dad, but it's good for your character. <laughs> yeah. And we laughed about it too. And I say that because sometimes in, in the midst of a hard or difficult trial, anybody going through a hard or difficult trial this morning? Yeah. Sometimes we can fall into this transactional thinking that God sends hard things into my life because it's good for my character. 
And we can get into this uh, transactional, it's good for my character mindset so that we think God sees that I lack patience. I need work in patience. So God begins to send me some patience developing trials and my child has an ear infection again, or now my other child has an ear infection. And on the way to the pediatricians, we hit every single red light on Cooper. We're gonna get there late. I pull into the parking lot. The check engine light comes on. We don't have money. There's, I'm waiting and waiting there. I call my spouse, hoping for some sympathy, but my spouse cross-examines me. What do you mean the check engine light's on? Did you check the oil? So now I'm, I'm maxing out in the area of patience. Am I really supposed to say at that point, oh, Lord, thank you. This is so good for my character. And I, I just know that, that when all this patience training is over, I'm going to be so patient. I mean, in the area of patience, I'm going to be spiritually ripped. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a patient six-pack. Can, can we see this morning that's not a gospel perspective of the way that God leads us through trials? And I, I say it's not a gospel perspective because, yes, God does form our character in trials, but even people who do not believe in God, even people who are not faithful followers of Jesus Christ think that tough times produce tough people. They write books about it. They give TED Talks about it. And, and sometimes if we have that perspective, this is good for my character, there's some frustration with God. When is this going to be over? Is this enough, is this enough patience? Or, or a, a, am I in patience 101 again? Or is this patience 103? Or is this patience 105? We need a gospel perspective on the trials that we go through. Here's the good news this morning. God is going to do something tremendous. God is doing something incredible. The way God uses trials is awesome. God uses trials in your life to form in you a faith life with him in which you are lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. So how does that work? Please turn with me to James chapter 1. If you're still learning your way around the Bible, the book of James is just after the book of Hebrews and just before the book of 1 Peter, uh, these are, the book of James is one of the general epistles. The general epistles are Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3 John, and Jude. And they are general epistles because they were written to people uh, generally and not to a specific church. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see that James answers two fundamental questions here. First question James wants to answer is, what is God doing? What is God doing in those trials? That's verses 2 through 4. Second question that James is going to answer is, how can I respond wisely? How can you respond wisely to those trials? That's verses 5 through 12. Just two simple questions. What is God doing and how should I respond wisely in these trials? But before we jump into answering those questions, I want to introduce you to the man James. Look at verse 1, please. It says, James, a servant of God, literally a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold on to that for a second. There are three James in the Bible. 
The first James is the son of Zebedee, the older brother of John, one of Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And that James was martyred, probably by decapitation, about the year 44 A.D. by Herod Agrippa, who wanted to win some points with the Jewish authorities. Herod Agrippa being the grandson of the Herod who ordered the slaughter of the babies in the time of Jesus. James number two, also one of the 12 apostles, is James the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less, little James. Maybe he was shorter, maybe he was younger. We don't really know. Some church historians think that he uh, was sent after the resurrection of Christ as a missionary to Persia. The third James, who's the James that wrote this book, uh, probably, is James the half-brother of Jesus. Matthew 13, 56 tells us that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, the children of Mary and Joseph. First in the list of brothers is James. Lucky James. His big brother is Jesus. How, yeah, how hard would that, would, have, would that have been? I'm sure Mary had the wisdom to never say, why can't you be more like your big brother, <laughs> Jesus? But still, yeah, your, your brother, James, your brother says he's the son of God. What do you think about that? James didn't believe. The Bible tells us that James' brothers did not believe in him. In fact, they, they mocked him. In John chapter 7, it says once when the family was about to go up to, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booze, James brothers, uh, Jesus' brothers basically said to him, if you're the Messiah, go and show your stuff. Now's the time. Get after it. Show us who you are. John says in chapter 7, verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So what happened here? How did doubting, mocking James become this James, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who was a man known for his intense personal piety and prayer life, and above all, James the man who says, a slave, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened? Jesus happened. James had a personal encounter with the living, resurrected, victorious Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians about the appearances of Jesus and the encounters he had with people after his resurrection. Here's the list. He says he appeared first to Peter, then to the twelve. Then, says Paul, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then, says Paul, he appeared to James. To James. You and I will never be changed by simply believing in the resurrection of Jesus as an article of faith. There are many people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and they have never been changed by the resurrected Jesus. What changes us, what transforms us, and what gives us great joy is, is a real-time relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ who loves you and gave himself for you and gives himself to you. And James was transformed. And we begin preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. 
God moved him into leadership in the church of Jerusalem. He was one of the pillars of the church. He's the James mentioned in Acts 15 who protects the purity of the gospel. But around the year 62 AD, some of the Jewish authorities who wanted to put pressure on the church wanted James to denounce Jesus. And according to church historians, they put him up on a tower on the temple where he was supposed to denounce Jesus, and instead he preached the gospel. And they threw him down, and he lay on the ground with his body broken. He was clubbed to death. That's James. And he's writing, it says here, second half of verse 1, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, maybe around the year 49 AD. Uh, James was probably the earliest New Testament book. Who are these 12 tribes in dispersion? They are Jewish Christians. Probably those who put their faith in Christ in the early days of the church, and as a result, they were run out of town. They had to leave. They were rejected by their families. They lost their possessions. They know something about hard times and trials. And so that brings us back to question number one. What is God doing in the midst of my trials? And the answer is this. God will faithfully use your trials, whatever they are, to grow a mature faith in you so that you lack nothing with him. God will faithfully use your trials, whatever they might be, to grow in you a mature faith so that you lack nothing and you walk with the God who has everything. Look at verse 2, please. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet trials of various kinds, because you will. And trials always expose two things in us. The first thing trials expose in us is our lack. That's why they're trials. Financial trials expose our lack of finances, lack of money. Trials of sickness expose our lack of health and energy that we desire. Trials in our marriage expose the lack of the happiness and, and the joy that we want to find with our mate. Trials with an adult son or adult daughter expose that something is still, still lacking there in our, the relationship we want to have. Job trials expose the lack of fulfillment that we expected to have when we took the job. Trials expose our lack. And that hurts. Lack, lack hurts, right? Second, trials expose the strategies that we often use to fix the lack. So sometimes in, when the lack is there, we have self-centered, self-referenced strategies that we're going to use to fix that lack and get control of the situation. And James has the audacity to say, God is up to something different. God has a different way of dealing with your lack. That's verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read them with just a few comments. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith, that testing, it doesn't mean testing like in, in school where we're tested pass or fail. The word testing there refers to the kind of testing with a, a pure, uh, proving the purity of a metal, like smelting gold, testing gold, refining gold, purifying gold. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That is, steadfastness in your faith. 
Not just steadfastness in general. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness in your faith. And, says James, verse 4, let steadfastness have its full refining effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking what? Lacking nothing. Because God is growing in you a mature faith so that you walk with the one who has everything. When trials come into our lives, sometimes they don't really challenge our belief system. So I still, in the midst of a trial, I I still believe in my head that God is good and generous and gracious. But what a trial does is test my faith. Will God be good and generous and gracious to me in this trial? Will he supply, supply for my lack? in this trial. And God says, I will. Yes, I will. Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, shall not lack. Psalm 34.10 The young lions suffer want and hunger despite their power. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Deuteronomy 2.7. He, uh, God, knows you're going through this great wilderness. Anybody in a great wilderness these 40 years? That's a long trial. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked, what does it say? Nothing. You see, I lack, I lack every day. I live in the land of lack. (laughs) God never lacks any day. And, And right there in the intersection of my lack with the God who never lacks, that is where he wants to grow my faith to maturity so that I lack nothing because I am walking with, receiving from the God who has everything. And that is why we count it all joy. Because God is working in that way. Trials are not fun, are they? We we, we don't have joy just in these trials. But we count it all joy because God is showing me how to walk with him that I, you and I, might receive everything that he wants to give us. How many of you ever heard of the Japanese art of kintsugi? Anybody? A few. Okay. Uh, the word kintsugi comes from a Jap- well, it's a compound word. Kin means gold. Tsugi means to re- reconnect. So the, the Japanese art of, of, of um, kintsugi was, was developed for reconnecting, for reconstructing precious teacups that have been broken. So the teacups are not just repaired. This is an art of reconstruction and and reconnection in which the Kintsugi master takes a broken teacup and uses lacquer and gold filling to reconstruct the teacup, which is now more beautiful than it was before. 
which is now stronger and more resilient than it was before. Notice that the Kintsugi master uses the gold right in the places where the teacup is broken. See, there we are. Anybody hurt? Broken in a few places? That's me. What does this Kintsugi teacup lack? Nothing. It lacks nothing. Because it's been reconstructed by the hand and the art of the Kintsugi master. Dear ones, this is not, it's good for your character. This is the glory of the grace of God. My biggest need, your biggest need in a trial is not figure out how I can get it over with as fast as I can. That's what we would like. My greatest need in a trial is to learn how to walk with my God in a maturing faith. Not a perfect faith, I'll never have a perfect faith, but a maturing faith that lacks nothing because he has everything and my life can be made by him a blessing for others no matter how hard the wind is blowing in my face. So let me plead with you. I'm, I'm, I'm pleading this morning. <laughs> this is important. Because sometimes when trials get long and hard, what happens? People head for the exit. If this is all that God's got, I think I'm done here. Now how could God let this happen to me after all that I've done for him? I'm going to do a little bit of deconstruction. And maybe we don't head out on the outside, but on the inside we are bitter and we are angry and we are disillusioned and as a result we are an easy target for Satan and his deceit. We're not given a choice between a life with trials and one with no trials. It's not like the supermarket checkout. Would you like a life with no trials? Yes. We are given a choice between a life of joy and a life of no joy in the midst of those trials. Are you in the middle of a long trial this morning? Some trials never end. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, I would love to be like one of those Kintsugi teacups, but sometimes I just almost have no faith at all. Half the time, I'm, I'm angry. So what do I do? That's question number two. And in verses 5 through 12, we're going to see four asks. Four simple asks that you and I can use to lean into the way that God is growing our faith so that we lack nothing. So ask number one. Ask God to give you his wisdom for your trial. Because trials disorient us. Trials get us confused. We get panicked in trials. We do dumb stuff in trials. Verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom in this trial, and we do, what does it say? Let him ask God who gives generously to all, that's you and me, without reproach, and it will be given him. God will generously give you all the wisdom that you need to walk with him in your trial. And not only that, 
when we mess up, when we falter, when we fail, God will give us more wisdom. Without reproach, without saying, don't you get it yet? Why haven't you done better? God gives abundantly, appropriately, and affectionately. He gives abundantly in your lack, appropriately in time and place, and affectionately as your heavenly father. A woman named uh, Kristen Weatherall has written a book. She's the editor of a book called 12 Faithful Women, Portraits of Steadfast Endurance. It's based on James 1. She tells something of her own story. She says this, a decade ago, I spent a year in New York that changed me. It brought one hard thing after another. Loneliness, job loss, heartbreak, financial stress, chronic pain. I remember thinking, no more, Lord. Have you ever said that? I have. No more, Lord. And she goes on to talk about the wisdom that she gained in this trial, how God showed her wisdom. She says, Jesus used these trials to exercise and strengthen my faith, not in myself or in my own understanding, but in him, in his faithful character and steadfast purpose. You see, wisdom is so important in a trial because sometimes what we think we lack is not what we really lack. We think what we lack is financial provision. God will show us what we really lack is contentment in Christ. Or what we, what we think we lack are better communication skills to deal with my teenage son and his rebellion, but God will show us what we really lack is humility and repentance on our part that healing might come into that relationship. Or we think, well, these, these jo this job stress, is, this, this trial is just killing me. And we think we lack relief. But what we really lack is the willingness to surrender our ambition to God. Hello, Jim. When you ask God for wisdom, he will show you what you really lack. And then here's the good news. He will pour into your life abundance in that lack. God gives abundantly, appropriately, and always affectionately. Second ask. This will be verses six through eight. Ask God to burn your bridges. I'm serious. When we get in a, in a, in a trial, a difficult situation, what do we start to do? We start looking for escape routes, escape bridge, plan B. I can get out of it this way. And James says, if that's your mentality, you will never receive anything from God. Look at uh, verse 6. But let him, this is the second let in this passage, let him ask for God's wisdom in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man or woman, unstable in all his ways. And when James says here, let him ask in faith with no doubting, he's not telling you and me to try and conjure up some kind of a positive mental uh, attitude that, yes, I know, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, this is what I'm going to receive. That's presumption. James is saying the one who doubts, the double-minded person, is the person who's already got plan B ready to escape from this trial. 
One of the best pictures you can find of it, we're going to look at it, is in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, we're going to start at verse 17 in a moment. I, I want us to look at this because James often uses the Old Testament in his book. He assumes that you and I know the Old Testament well, and he talks about Abraham and Rahab and Job and Elijah, and I think in verses 6 through 8, he's thinking about Israel's rebellion in the desert and their double-mindedness. So here's what verse 17 says, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart. God's testing their faith to bring it out as gold, but they tested God in their heart. What does it say? By demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? You know, here's my table. I don't see anything good on it. Can God spread a table in my wilderness? Can he lay out a banquet in my wilderness? Maybe not. Maybe I'll just take charge of the menu myself. Verse 21. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, his anger against Israel, because they did not believe in God. They did not trust in his saving power. And James says, that man, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So could I ask you this morning to tell God, Lord, burn my bridges. Burn them all. Or maybe to just change verse 17 from a question into a declaration. Not can God set a table in the wilderness, but a declaration. Lord, you can. You can spread a table for me, even in the wilderness. And Lord, pick the menu too while you're at it. Ask number three. Ask God for even more of his riches in Christ. Let me read verses 9 through 11, and then we'll look at the principle. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, that is like a wildflower, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. That's this week in Dallas. Its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James is not dividing the, the, the world into economic class warfare between the haves and the have-nots. What James is telling us here, he's saying your lack or your abundance will not depend on how much you possess. It will depend on how much you ask of God. That's what it depends on. And the lowly brother says, I ask God for everything. I'm rich. That's his exaltation. The rich man says, I cannot buy my way out of these trials. I'm poor. That's his humiliation. And the world divides people into the haves and the have-nots, but the gospel divides the world into those who are rich in Christ and those who are not. And that's because as human beings, we all share the same great lack and that is our lack of a savior. 
I lack righteousness before God. I am totally lacking. I totally lack the ability to save myself from the condemnation and the punishment in hell that my sins deserve. I totally lack. Ephesians 2 says that I am dead in my sins and trespasses. Dead is is major league lack. That's lacking. And how does God respond to our lack? He responds with his son. He gives us his son in our lack. That's Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all Verse 32 simply means this. If God is for you so much, if he is for you so much that he would give you his son and then unite you to his son like like Jared preached on union with Christ, if he is for you so much, will he stop giving you what you need in Christ? Will he stop giving you riches in Christ? No, you will not lack. How could you lack? Hudson Taylor said, it is beautiful to be one with Christ. How can Christ be rich and I poor? Ask number four. Ask every day for these things for the rest of your life. For as long as trials endure. Sometimes uh, when we find ourselves in the great crises of our lives, the the death of a loved one, or maybe a runaway child, or a broken marriage, or the loss of our job. We, We turn to God, we cry out, God hears us and he answers. But I think one of the greatest tests that many of you here are facing this morning, one of the greatest tests is the same old, same old every day seeking to remain steadfast in our faith. Long days, much like the day before. Hard days, long days in which we're not seeming to make much progress. And those, those days put us, put us to the test, and that's when we discover that our, our steadfast faith is, simply, is always simply coming out of God's steadfast love for us. That's verse 12. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast in his faith under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. He's promised it to you. He's promised it to those who love him. The crown of life is not the kingly crown. The kingly crown belongs to Jesus alone. Your crown of life, your crown of life, that God himself will put on your head is your life testimony that Jesus' steadfast love for me was the one and only anchor of my steadfast faith. So do you earn this crown with your steadfast faith? Are you kidding me? Could my weak and wavering faith ever earn any kind of crown from God? No. 
Steadfast faith is not an earning posture, but steadfast faith is a receiving posture. Steadfast faith is the way that we walk with God to receive from God all that is in his generous heart to give us. So let me explain that and close the message with just a story from my childhood about my grandmother, uh, Mimi. My grandparents, my maternal grandparents, were Pappy and Mimi. And the highlight of our summer every year was to spend two weeks with them at their house in South St. Louis. South St. Louis was the land of plenty. I lived in DeSoto, a little town that was the land of lack. And one summer when I was about 10, Mimi said, uh, I will pay you 50 cents an hour if you will weed my flower garden. And back in the pre-modern era, <laughs> 50 cents an hour was, was good money. That was 10 packs of baseball cards. That was five ice-cold, frosty root beers at Sanders Market. So, Mimi, I am ready now. So I worked uh, two hours in her flower garden. And when I was finished, I told her I was finished and waited for my, uh, my well-earned wages. Mimi gave me a dollar. Yes, 20 packs of baseball cards. I'm going to wipe out the drugstore. Then she pulled out another dollar and gave it to me. Then she pulled out a third dollar and gave it to me. And actually, I, I felt a little bad about, this, about the third dollar. <laughs> I said, Mimi, you don't, you don't have to do this. Uh, I didn't earn it. She said, I know. She said, I, I want to give it to you because I love you. I wonder how many things does God want to give you because he loves you in your trials. Steadfast faith is not an earning posture but it is a receiving, a, a, an asking posture so that you will lack nothing because God knows how to give you out of his riches in Christ, culminating in putting on your head the crown of life, never ending, never lacking life with Jesus Christ. So I don't know what trials you're going through this morning. Some of you are going through some pretty rough stuff. You're tired, you're beat up, a little scuffed up around the edges maybe. God says, trust me. Those spaces, those trials, those spaces are going to be the places where I grow a mature faith in you so that you lack nothing because you're walking with me, the God who has everything, and you will. Count it all joy. Let's pray.